Coming up on today's show, the latest on the residential school situation in our country, we'll chat with Elder Joanne Saddleback. A cyber attack hits the world's largest meat supplier, JBS. What is with these ransomware attacks? How can we protect ourselves? And we'll have a great story. Alberta man who has started up Veteran Hunters Canada, using hunting to help first responders who are dealing with PTSD. So the latest on the residential school situation in our country, now there's a lot of focus on trying to identify the remains that were found at that site in Kamloops, and it's going to be a tall order. Uh, According to the experts, with complete access to the records that were kept by the religious orders, the Catholic Church governments, and through oral histories, there's some hope that the remains of these children can be identified, but experts um, say that it's not going to be easy. Um, They say it's very frustrating that the federal government and churches have actually fought over making the school records available to groups that are working to identify victims of the residential school system for more than 20 years now. And the fact is, these kids, in Kamloops anyway, came from all over the place. Uh, indigenous children from 36 B.C. communities are recorded as having attended that school. Um, there's other files that show it could be 38 additional communities, maybe even in Alberta and the Yukon. Um, so it's, it's, it's a tall order. And, you know, we, we talk about 215 bodies have been found. Uh, the official records, 51. So the records are very, very incomplete. It's going to be very difficult to try and sort through all of this. And, and, and that is a priority, I would think. Um, we want to talk with as many voices on this as we can. So this morning we're going to chat with Elder Joanne Saddleback. Uh, She's joining us to give us her perspective on this situation. Um, Joanne is uh, the Elder in Residence at the Edmonton Public Library. Um, Elder Joanne, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Um, We we should mention that um, your, your position as an Elder with the Edmonton Public Library System, that's one of the things that was in the Truth and Reconciliation Report, right? That was one of the things in terms of the, you know, of that long list of 96 different recommendations, this was one of them, to have people in place that can provide this kind of education and insight. Yes, but the library did have an elder in residence previously right, as yes. well before the recommendations, yeah. Going back to 2017. Um, just <laughs> let, let's talk about this latest situation. And, you know, as I, as I was saying, it looks like they're going to be doing all the work they can to try and identify um, the remains that they found just how important is that? To me, that seems like something that just is not negotiable. We have to be able to identify these children, pay them their respects, return them to their families, whatever the case may be. It seems like that should be job one. You're absolutely right. I mean, during the Recon- Truth and Reconciliation Commission, parents were often heard, grandparents were often heard that we don't know what happened to our child. We don't know what happened to our grandchild. There, there's no record. They say they don't know, you know, so they, it's very important that we be able to claim our children, be able to bury them properly, be able to know what happened to them. I mean, there's still so many, thousands possibly, you know, who yeah. still don't know. But Kamloops certainly wasn't the first one. I mean, the Edmonton Residential School here where Nietzsche Palmaker stands now, uh, they had discovered bodies of children as well you know it wasn't that well reported not like this and thank goodness it's coming out but you know we we have missing bodies of our children you know everywhere and they're well right across the country you do and, and you know we've talked to other guests on the show here who say that when you take a look at alberta in particular there was a lot 
of this going on in Alberta. A number of these schools, I mean, a large percentage of what was happening nationally was actually taking place in Alberta. So yes, we will make these discoveries in Alberta. We have to. And um, the numbers are going to be staggering again. They will be. I mean, the sad thing about it, I mean, it's like as the as the whole nations of, of Indigenous people mourn, I mean, there is this constant reminder, you know, that we are going well into our second century now, you know, since a, a good 150-some-odd years, you know, where we have not had the full say or right to our own children. We don't have the right to still yet in Alberta to educate them in their own languages and their own cultures the way that the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, you know, have stated, you know, that, you know, the whole foster care, there was residential Mm -hmm. school, now there's foster care. And Alberta apprehends more children than anywhere else in the world. And they are by far Indigenous children. So we have not had that say about our children, you know, rules that are made up not by Indigenous people, but by non-Indigenous people and governments and systems. And there is that systemic racism that exists, especially, I think, in children's services, you know, that there's this unrealistic thought of very colonial thought about our own children. And we're victims to that constantly. You know, and the same thing in, in foster care. There are lots of deaths that occur in foster care. Sure. A lot of abuses that occur. So we're, we're, we have yet to talk about that, you know, and um, this is, we, for us, it's a continuation. Well, that's the thing, going back 150 years, right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's changed in, in some of the systems that are used, but it's still basically the same sort of overarching system. The thing I'm wondering, where we are right now with this discovery, with the fact this is back in the House of Commons, um, we're hearing about this all day, every day, as we should be, uh, this increased attention and focus and understanding. Where do we go from here? What needs to start happening today to actually make some meaningful change on this? Well, I think the city of Edmonton is is an example. It is trying to educate all of its staff who work for the city to have some kind of working knowledge about Indigenous peoples and about our our various cultures. I think that that's a good start. There has to begin some real meaning to that relationship and kinship, you know, that we call Wakotuin, and that's what the Indigenous framework is based on, and that the uh, Edmonton Public Library is striving very hard to fulfill as well, just not the calls to action of the TRC, but also what about the United Nations Declaration you know, and the the um, declaration that the city of Edmonton had had back when the TRC was here as well. How do we fulfill those? Well, it begins with that relationship. You know, who are we to have some kind of working knowledge? We're not an invisible people. You know, there was some yeah. thought that maybe we're we're immigrants. Well, find out about our history. We have our own history. We have our own creation story. We're not immigrants. You know that we understand this world, this earth that you walk on, the way that we understand her you know that there's there's a way in which we can reach each other in in the middle or even go further and i often tell people every single time i walk out my front door i'm in culture shock i live a very different way in my home and i know as soon as i walk out the door there are people who who believe differently than i do who 
think differently than mm-hmm. I do, who do things differently than I do, you know, find out about each other, you know, and, I, and I'm afraid. I mean, I'm, I'm a great grandmother, and I'm very afraid. I'm very aware that every time grandchildren go off to, to school, it's another day of colonization. I am aware that, you know, my great-grandchild children are, are very much in peril you know, of that, of that children's services system. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there, there's always, you know, that our children are, are trafficked, you know, by far, you know, between seven and 12 years old is the average, the age range in which our children are, are, uh, trafficked across, um, domestically trafficked across provincial lines. You know, there's so much going on. You know, like I say, you know, the truth and reconciliation, everybody wants to jump to reconciliation, but we have not yet finished with the truth. Right. Um, I, we just got a text, and I, I really want to, uh, to ask the question that they put forward. It resonates with me. I feel the same way. Uh, it's a lengthy text. Just at the end, though, it says, I'm so very sorry it took finding 215 children to get me to the point where I will do whatever I can to get others like me to listen and to wake up. I completely understand there will be more children found can you please ask your guest, what can I do to move forwards towards true reconciliation? What can somebody who's jarred and shocked and stunned by these revelations, what can they do to make this better at an individual level? You know, almost every single institution has an elder attached to it. And that's a sure way to begin to understand our our peoples, our Indigenous peoples, to understand that the the cultures it's not a it's not a product it's a process and the process of that is closely married to protocol to be able to go and offer an elder some tobacco and and cloth to be able to speak to them to begin to to even ask those questions begin that relationship begin that introduction to the indigenous communities to you know it even goes with unions i mean i've walked lines with unions i've never belonged to a union in my life but I, and i tell them i said i'll walk this line with you but don't forget us when it comes to our rights and that's what this governments are often eroding mm-hmm. all the time to find out about what the treaty really is that we were not a conquered people that we signed peace treaties to avoid war that we still sit here as sovereign peoples you know and to and as our old people always say what they want from governments, what they want from peoples who are non-indigenous is acknowledgement and respect. Those two things. Just start there. Yeah. Yes. Well, Elder Joanne Saddleback, I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thank you very much. That is Elder Joanne Saddleback, who is the elder in residence at the Edmonton Public Library. Well, they're at it again, these Russian cyber hackers. Uh, They're getting good at it. I think they've been good at it for a while. But uh, as you probably heard, a ransomware attack uh, against the Brazilian meatpacking giant JBS took place um, past few days. 
It disrupted production in the United States, in Canada, in Australia. Brooks, Alberta has a plant that was taken offline for a day and a half, almost two days. They, they're back up and running as of yesterday. Um, but it's just yet another example of how commonplace these attacks are coming, the kind of industry and infrastructure that they are targeting. And it really is alarming to see what they can do, what they can infiltrate, and the impact that they have. So let's get a little more insight into these um, ransomware attacks, what they are, how they work, and what we can do to protect ourselves. We're going to chat now with Kimberly Goody. Uh, Kimberly is the lead expert and senior manager of financial crime analysis at Mandian Threat Intelligence at FireEye Incorporated. Kimberly, uh, thanks for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. It's great to be here. You know, these we, we talk about these every once in a while. They come up, the really big ones that make, uh, you know, national news and international news, like uh, the pipeline in the southern United States, this one at the meatpacking plant. But these things are very, very common, right? These happen every day. Oh, yeah, of course. There are plenty of attacks that are happening around the world that you're not hearing about because they aren't as big of names. They might be smaller companies um, or they might not have a direct impact on consumers. I think the ones that you are going to most often hear about are the ones that do result in very concrete, tangible impacts to your average individual. So, those attacks that result in fuel shortages or the attacks that result in, you know, maybe shelves emptied at mm-hmm. the grocery store or canceled medical procedures. Those are really the, the attacks that you'll hear about most commonly on the news. Yeah, so these attacks that we're talking about here, basically what they do, if I understand it correctly, is they infiltrate a company or, as you said, a hospital uh, or a pipeline's computer network and basically seize it and hold it hostage for ransom, Right. Yeah, so there's a couple different components here to to talk through. So there's usually multiple groups of actors that are involved in a single attack. Um, So often you will see the the actors who are providing ransomware, they will partner with a team of operators who actually deploy that ransomware at a victim organization. Um, And then you also typically have somebody who is providing initial access to an organization as well. Um, And so these, you know, three groups, for simplicity's sake, um, they'll team up together to pull off a a single attack. Um, And, you know, throughout these attacks, right, we've we've seen those evolve over the years, too. So it's not just a case where they are encrypting files on a network anymore. In a lot of the cases that we respond to, actors are actually exfiltrating data from that victim environment. And why they do that is because they can then threaten to post that information publicly through a what we refer to as a shaming site. These mm-hmm. are sites that are accessible via the Tor network. Um, but, you know, this is great from the attacker's perspective because if they are able to restore from backups that victim organization, they can still hold over that victim's head the threat to release this data that they have stolen into the public. And it either you you do what they ask or they do that, and we're talking about a large amount of money they're managing to extract from these these people, right? Yeah, the, the actual payments over time have increased significantly. The, one of the larger payments that, you know, has been highlighted most recently was $40 million. Now, $40 million is obviously more of an anomaly, but it's fairly common for us to see 
payments in the millions of dollars. Um, so to give you kind of a more concrete example, there was one group that we did analysis on um, comparing ransomware payments made to them in March 2019 compared to March 2020. Um, and over that time period, they were actually able to double the average payment that they were receiving from the victim organizations. Wow. And this rise in payments is, is due to several factors. Um, you know, one of those being that they are going after organizations with higher annual revenues. And obviously, if you, those organizations make more money, you can demand more payment from them as well. A, a booming business, obviously. Now, with this latest attack on JBS, I mean, obviously, this rises above, you know, private industry. You had the FBI involved. You had Department of Homeland Security. The governments of Australia, Canada were all involved in trying to help them through this. So this is something that, you know, has governments are aware of it. But the concern, I guess, is where this could go next. What else could be at risk and how can we protect ourselves? Yeah, of course. Um, so these Attacks are definitely receiving a lot of attention, uh, in, especially in recent weeks with the, the string of very high-profile attacks that have, have hit around the globe. Um, and so, you know, from the perspective of what can organizations, like, do about this, I mean, from my perspective, it's, if you are um, any organization, right, ransomware is a threat that is relevant to you. And threat actors, you know, de generally are pretty opportunistic, so they cast the wide net. Um, we do see some actors who might avoid certain industries, so they might say, for example, we're not going to target hospitals or critical infrastructure or um, government because they don't want law enforcement's attention on their operations. Um, but, you know, there are plenty of other actors who don't yeah. have that moral compass and that, that target um, hospitals, for example. Um, so everyone is really a potential victim of a ransomware attack. And some of the, you know, because organizations that are facing these threats may not have been traditionally impacted by cybercrime or cyber espionage operations, um, they might not necessarily have as well of an established security program. Um, so really, I mean, things like implementing um, two-factor authentication for logins, especially to critical systems, or limiting the use of administrative access on workstations and servers, or patching critical vulnerabilities. So, you know, it's not realistic to patch everything for a lot of organizations, right. but understanding which um, vulnerabilities are being exploited by threat actors and prioritizing those um, those are some places that organizations can start. Yeah, and they have to step it up. Um, Kimberly, great stuff. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, of course. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. That's Kimberly Goody, who is with FireEye Incorporated, and that's uh, the firm that often these companies end up reaching out to. Uh, to try and get their, their systems back and to get better protections in place. And we're talking about the ransomware attack that targeted JBS, which is um, the world's largest meatpacking company. Uh, they're massive, absolutely massive. Um, they have operations around the world, including in Australia, the United States, and right here in Alberta. There's a plant in Brooks, Alberta, that employs about 2,800 people. They had to shut down. Uh, for a few shifts this week because of this attack. Uh, how big is this place? Well, if it were to shut down for just one day, just one day, the United States would lose almost a quarter of its beef processing capacity. 20,000 beef cows. If it were to shut down for just one day. So this 
closure reflects, you know, the reality that the modern meat processing industry is, is very heavily automated. And these kind of attacks are a little scary to the impact they, they can have. So let's find out exactly what impact this one had. It was pretty short. Mark Jordan joins us now. He uh, follows the meat industry as executive director of Leap Market Analytics. Mark, thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on, Jay. Yeah, so we're talking about JBS here. And when you're talking about, um, you know, uh, <laughs> the meat industry, JBS is about as big as it gets, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right up there near the top. Uh, you know, Tyson Foods is another big name, Cargill. But, uh, yeah, JBS is pretty much there. And we know they have an operation here in Alberta now. In terms of the shutdown that we saw, it was really short, right? I mean, did do you think it's going to have any meaningful impact on, you know, what we're going to see at the grocery store? <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say meaningful is, uh, is relative to your position in the, in the <laughs> supply chain. Um, probably not, assuming this it clears as it seems to be. Uh, it looks like most everything is back online for uh, JBS today, uh, and, a, and a bit of stuff was back online yesterday. But, um, yeah, a couple days is a huge headache. Uh, I, you know, it's, it's tough to say. There were certainly, I'm, I'm assuming, some orders missed, and 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 there were some. I'm sure there were some uh, folks in the value chain uh, panicking and and uh, moving and shaking. Uh, probably not a significant. Um, you know, probably won't see a significant impact on the consumer. But it was one of those things that d- it doesn't take much. And and you know, I could say, or I would say, uh, very close to being um, a, a much bigger problem had this persisted uh, more. You know, just a couple more days. Well, exactly. That's the thing. And you know, you make a good point. It, as far as the consumer end, you may not see a lot, but I know some of the deliveries that people showed up with livestock were were turned around because they weren't working. So you're right. This is a long interconnected chain that finally ends up in the grocery store. But there's a lot of people along the way. Right, exactly, and uh, yeah. So, you know, crisis is again, again, it, it you know, uh, we, we've seen some things over the last couple of years. The, uh, unfortunately, we, this uh, the the supply chain, the food supply chain has been tested. COVID being the, mm-hmm. the biggest one, you know, last spring that was uh, uh, just a mess of epic proportions. Uh, but there have been a few others. We've had some weather events uh, back in February. The um, you know the, the the big storm that swept down deep into Texas was a big problem. You go back a couple of years, the uh, big fire at uh, the Tyson plant in Kansas. So there, there have been a lot of tests here the last couple of years. Yeah. And when we talk about meat prices at the consumer end, we're seeing them go up pretty dramatically in some places. Um, are those, what's the reasoning for that? Is it, is it just those things that you're talking about? Is it COVID? Yeah. So what we're seeing, and this is, there, there, there's some supply issues that, uh, yeah, that seem to be COVID related, but also some demand side things and and the the working theory is that as we you know sat around the last year largely in lockdown you know people need to eat and in some cases uh you know eating eating meat specifically or you know uh, protein based diet has uh, been a good source of indulgence mm-hmm. uh you know people get you know more grilling around the house and just uh yeah but, but a chance to eat you know that's one way to one way to indulge and treat yourself when you can't go to a theme park or sure uh you know to the beach or whatever and so, yeah, you, you, you know, grill out and eat more. So there has been some demand side strength and, and just the, the supply side has not kept up. You've got rising feed costs, uh, some labor issues. And, and that, if you look in totality, if you look over a long history and you look at the, the supply of meat across the board, beef, pork, chicken, uh, turkey, even some of the other uh, minor commodities, 
you wouldn't necessarily think on the surface that there's a supply issue, but relative to demand and some of the shifts we've seen during the uh, pandemic, yeah, we, 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 need, we need more meat, and we're, we're paying for it as consumers uh, for that, for that uh, inability to kind of get a push from the, uh, the protein sector. Yeah, so, I mean, you, you talk about how thin those margins are right now, and then we saw, saw this ransomware attack. Sounds like we probably dodged a bullet, but it shows just how close we are to being in a really tough situation, right? It wouldn't take much to knock this off the rails. Right. And, I, you know, I hope that this is something that, I mean, you know, still like we <laughs> get way too many wake-up calls, but, yeah, this is a <laughs> newish threat. I mean, I've, you know, they, they, supposedly these things happen on a minor scale uh, sporadically, but I think this is probably uh, the most serious or at a, at a larger, at the largest scale hitting one packer uh, almost completely. And so, yeah, uh, it certainly shows an area of vulnerability. Yeah, absolutely it does. Mark, thanks so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Thanks again for having me on. Thank you. That is Mark Jordan, who uh, analyzes the meat industry for uh, Leap Market Analytics. A really cool organization that's doing some awesome work, and uh, I think it's a a story worth sharing. Uh, It's called the Veteran Hunters. And it's a nonprofit organization that's uh, based near Cochrane, Alberta. Now they're starting to reach out and help first responders coping with PTSD as well through hunting. Uh, it all came about because of our next guest, Todd Heisey, who spent 22 years in the military. Todd joins us now. Todd, how are you? Great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. First of all, just uh, tell us how you came to this. 22 years in the military, and then what? Yeah, so I spent um, a good part of just over six years in treatment for my PTSD at the Operational Stress Injury Clinic in Calgary. And while I was going through that treatment, I got into archery and then into bow hunting, and I found the combination of the two found to be really therapeutic. One, the archery was actually reinforcing the mindfulness techniques and the grounding that I was learning at the clinic to help me manage my PTSD on a day-to-day basis, as well as I found the, the bow hunting aspect actually now started... Uh, using all the skills that I'd learned in the military and coupling the two together actually became therapy for me. And actually I found uh, a sense of purpose in being again. And then in December, 2018, uh, Veterans Affairs determined that I couldn't, could no longer work in a, in a traditional capacity. And, but they, they said, you know, it's important. You're still a young guy. It's important for you to do something from a volunteer standpoint. And I thought, you know, I talked to my wife and she's been very um, crucial in my, in my treatment and uh, and she's like, you know, she goes, why don't you, you know, um, do something around hunting? And I looked across the country, and there was no organization in Canada that, that used hunting as a form of therapy for, for veterans or first responders. Mm-hmm. So I started up the Veteran Hunters in, uh, in 2019, and it just it, it, it took off. Uh, you know, and in, in so far, uh, year-to-date, we basically facilitated activities for 145 veterans and, and first responders. Now, you make a really interesting point. Like you say, you, 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 that was your career, 22 years in the military, right? Six years of therapy yeah. with PTSD. Yeah. So, so the mental illness stopped your career. It, it, you couldn't continue in that career anymore, but it didn't stop your life, and it didn't stop you being who you were, right? It's important to keep that continuing. Yeah, and one of the one of the misnomers, even within the veteran community or while we're serving, is that we think we think one of that's one of the things about PTSD and the anxiety that comes with it. It, it robs you of of your sense of identity and who you are. You just kind of like you go into this um, 
just skyroll, uh, skyroll, you know, tumbling down. And you need something to, to 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 trigger you in a positive way and say, no, you know, um, I need to I need to get out there and and stop the demons from telling me that I can't do this or I can't connect with other guys. And that's and that's one of the benefits of the veteran hunters. It's you know, it's a little, also a play on words. We're we're hunting for veterans out there to get them out of their basement, to get them yeah. engaged and connected with us and connected with other veterans. And one of the successes we've had is you know we'll host a three D archery shoot in july it's our second annual one and we'll have guys show up who haven't seen each other since afghanistan or bosnia or kosovo and they'll reconnect and they'll start telling stories and when you start connecting veterans and first responders who have a mental illness together they start realizing hey i'm not alone and one of the benefits and the safe part about um when we do these activities or hunts when veterans are hunting with each other who 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 have the same injuries everybody can totally relate um you know you get up in the morning and you reach for your bag of pills, and everyone's reaching for their bag, their same bag of pills, and you all kind of chuckle and laugh. And if a guy's having a bad day, we can see it because yeah. we know how that person is experiencing. So there's no pressure when a guy comes out with us because we've walked in their shoes, and we understand the journey that that they're going through. I can see. I mean, that makes perfect sense. Now, you, as you say, just taking part in archery and getting involved in hunting and things like that did so much for you personally. Do you find? Um, that same sort of response when you take these veterans and first responders out and, and introduce them to what you're doing? Did, did they have that same positive reaction that quickly? They do. In fact, um, to quote one of the, we were, we were fortunate, and we've actually had guys travel from Ontario to, to participate with us. And one of the quotes that he said was, you know, you're, you're you know, um, destroying nightmares and making memories. And that's what, at the end of every Every veteran's experience with the organization is unique to them and unique to their experience. So for some, you know, it's all about getting up close and personal with an elk. We've had guys within, you know, 50 meters of an elk, and I've been bugling with them, and and consciously choose not to harvest the animal. And that's, you know what, that's okay, because for them, the whole experience of watching these animals and, and being with their brothers or sisters in the field um, was therapeutic enough. And, and we see a really uh, a high re- return rate or and uh, referral rate from guys who have participated in our organization. And I now have about a dozen um, veteran hunter hosts across uh, four provinces, uh, and, all, and they're all guys who started with us initially uh, participating in hunts, uh, love the organization and what we're doing, and wanted to take on a more uh, regular volunteer role. And, and really, if it weren't for these dozen guys helping me, um, you know, we wouldn't be having the success that we do. Fantastic to hear. Um, so you want to expand this, you want to make this bigger, right? Tell us what you're working on and, and, and what you need. So, I mean, unfortunately, like anything, we need money. Uh, this year we were very fortunate to be successful in getting a mental health grant from the Alberta government. We've got some great sponsors. Vortex Canada has been with us from the beginning. Fantastic sponsor. Uh, uh, Cabela's and Bass Pro, your outdoor fund as well. Um, you know, we have a show uh, that will air next year on the Sportsman's Channel as well. Uh, so they've been very supportive of what we've been doing. Um, so, I mean, so unfortunately, money is, is really a key. You know, $1,000 um, can get it you know, get a veteran and a first responder, you know, uh, a two to three day uh, hunt. Um, and we have a variety of different locations, like I said, across across the country uh, that we can do that with. And we're having some great success 
this spring with our guys in uh, uh, northeastern, question northwestern Alberta, as well as on uh, Vancouver Island uh, with the spring the spring bear hunts. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, you know, money is something that mm. uh, makes the world go round. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we'll tell people how to get involved if they want to in a second. Just before I let you go, the one question. The first responders and the veterans, do you find a lot of crossover, a lot of similarities dealing with the same sorts of issues? Yeah, for sure. I mean, when we're deployed overseas as the military, we always have, uh, whether it be RCMP or Calgary or Edmonton Police, I spent most of my time in the Army of the West. So um, <clears throat> so we've had a lot of integration with, with those police forces in the past, especially when we're training um, doing interoperability training and learning different skills from an urban setting. And then we usually bring them with us when we deploy overseas. So we've really, we have a pretty good working relationship with law enforcement right from the get-go. But it's a natural tendency for a lot of guys. I'm an infantry officer by trade. Um, in fact, when I first got out, uh, was was going into the Edmonton Police. Um, so it's a natural fit for us to to. to, to, to move into uh, whether it be law enforcement or even um, EMS or EMT. So um, in some cases, we'll get guys who are, you know, a fireman, mm-hmm. paramedic, or uh, or a police officer who started their, their career of service um, in the military. And then that's, that spirit of service continues on. So. Excellent. Okay. So people want to help. People want to support you, give you the support you need. How can they do it? So I have a great fellow working for me, Jeff McClooney. Jeff is uh, is our sponsorship guy. So you can reach Jeff at uh, sponsorship at theveteranhunters.com. Uh, you can check us out online, theveteranhunters.com, as well as on Facebook and Instagram, as well as we also have a podcast. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you, Todd. Great work. Really appreciate you joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. That is Todd Heisey, who is the man behind Veteran Hunters Canada doing some really, uh, really interesting things and uh, finding a lot of success. Very cool. I appreciate Todd joining us this morning. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.